Central Park has long been a magnet for New Yorkers and tourists alike. Some people are drawn to it because of the peace and quiet it can provide in the often obnoxiously loud city. Others are attracted to its ball fields. And if you're a runner like me, you appreciate both its hilly and flat terrain. Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Since its inception, artists have also felt the tug of Central Park. Enter Roger Pasquet. He's put together a book that explores how artists have depicted the park in their work dating back to the mid-1800s. Roger studied art history at Columbia and at the University of California, Berkeley. He retired from his career as an ornithologist a few years ago, which freed him up to focus on his book titled Painting Central Park. Roger, thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. So I want to start off with a little bit of history on the park itself. Central Park dates back to the mid-1800s. The construction began in 1858, and the park was opened in stages, but the better parts of it were opened by 1860. And then I think it was 1863 that the northernmost end was added to the park from about 103rd Street to 110th when they concluded that that land wasn't good for anything else, too rocky, too swampy. So the park was extended to 110th Street. And it was a massive construction project with thousands of workers working for several several years. Who were the visionaries behind this great park? Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox were the designers, but there were visionaries even uh, before them. Andrew Jackson Downing thought there was a need for a park back uh, in the 1840s and campaigned for it, but it wasn't until the uh, the New York Reservoir Board said, well, we're going to build a new reservoir in this land in central Manhattan. Why don't you team up with us and create a park around it on what was mostly vacant land and a much larger site than they had been considering earlier, which was in the East 60s that was only about 150 acres. When did artists first start to get interested in this park? Well, the first artist was uh, Calvert Vox's brother-in-law, Samuel McEntee, who did a painting that's now at the New York Historical Society showing what the land, a piece of the land looked like in 1858 before there was a park, and that was part of the Vox and Olmsted submission to the commissioners who were deciding in a competition of about 30 entries wh- which team of designers would get that. Uh, Then there were a few other painters who painted the park in its early stages, but it really took off as a place for artists in the 1880s and 1890s. And what do you think drew artists to the park at that time? Well, most of the artists in America trained as uh, young men uh, in Paris, Munich, or London. And when they were there in the 1870s and 80s, what did they see? But the fashionable paintings whether they were Impressionist or more academic, were paintings of upper-class people in leisure activities, walking around in parks, on the streets, and they thought, this is what's going to sell in America. And they knew that certain other styles, like the Hudson River landscapes, were no longer selling. So when they came back to America, this is the kind of thing they wanted to paint in order to make a living. And where could they paint this? Not many places in America had parks that had people strolling around. And Central Park, with the Bethesda Terrace and the big flight of steps down to it, was very close to something in Paris, the Jardin du Luxembourg, where many of these painters had painted and saw that that was the place, the only place in America that had anything comparable to what the European capitals had. And that is one of the major things that drew painters of that first significant artistic generation 
to New York City and to the park. So was there an instant market for paintings of Central Park, or did that take time to build? Uh, It took time, but there are painters like William Merrick Chase, who did a lot of paintings in the park, who had been painting in a much darker darker palette than he found was marketable. And he decided in about 1888, this is not working. And so he turned to a much lighter, more impressionist palette. He, in fact, had been painting in Prospect Park, but he was denied permission to continue painting there by the superintendent of the park, who was an amateur painter himself, and said that uh, only amateur painters could paint here. The underline in that is that uh, the superintendent didn't want the competition from a much more accomplished painter. And it was then that Chase turned to Central Park, where he'd already been before, but he painted a whole series of paintings of people in different parts of the park, both uh, in uh, crowds and uh, singly. What inspired you to look into the paintings of Central Park, to put a whole book together on them? Well, I've spent most of my life uh, living close to the park, but it was the years that I was in Washington in the late 70s, early 80s, that I first saw a wonderful painting at the Hirshhorn Collection by George Bellows of the Bethesda Fountain on a dark November day when everything was brown. And I'm very interested in monochromatic paintings, but it was this painting that made me homesick and also made me think, There are probably lots of other paintings of Central Park. And so for a long time, I had wanted to investigate the subject, but I was working and didn't have the time for it. And all of those years, I feared somebody else would come up with this idea and run with it. But happily, nobody else has. And so when I had the time uh, to research this more thoroughly in 2012, uh, I took this idea to a publisher and they were happy to, uh, to take it. So where does one begin when they're looking into the paintings of Central Park dating back to the late 1800s? Well, I started my work at the New York Society Library on 79th Street in the stack that has all of the art books, just going through every book about every American painter who lived from 1858 when the park was first painted through the present. I found a lot of basic stuff there, but the more... um, Rewarding kinds of research came somewhat later when I went to the Metropolitan Museum's Extraordinary Library, and I went down into the basement where they keep all of the auction catalogs, and I went through all of the auction catalogs of Sotheby's and Christie's American painting sales from 2014 back to 1890. And just thumbing through them, looking at every page, there I found paintings that had always been in private collections that hadn't been published by painters whom I already knew painted the park, but more excited, exciting for me was finding paintings by artists who I had never guessed painted the park. Such as? Such as Jasper Cropsey, who was mainly a painter of the Catskills and the uh, Hudson Valley. Uh, then there was the surprise of finding a painting by Fairfield Porter, the mid-20th century realist painter who did live in New York for some years, but I had already suspected he'd painted the park, and I looked in the catalogue raisonné and couldn't find anything. Well, here was this fine watercolour that had escaped the uh, the person who put together the multi-volume catalogue raisonné that was uh, up at auction, and I was able to include it, the only image of Central Park by him that I found. And then even more exciting was last year after I had more or less finished the book, I was at uh, the exhibition for an auction at Christie's in their Impressionist and Modern department, and there was a uh, drawing by Marc Chagall. Who would have thought Marc Chagall ever painted Central Park? If you go through all of the books about him, you'll never find it because it's too peripheral to the things that uh, he was known for. 
So that was a great addition to find this French painter in New York painting the park. And then the next week, by chance, at Sotheby's at the um, Contemporary Auction, there was a painting by David Hockney of Central Park. Again, who would have thought that David Hockney painted Central Park? So uh, now, having finished the book, <clears throat> I live in dread, thinking that mm. there may be other great paintings that will pop up that um, I should have known to include. We'll have to put out another edition, right? Yes, yes. So what is the most recent painting that you include in this book of Central Park? The most recent was done in the fall of 2014. It's by Simon Parks, who is a contemporary, of course, painter who lives in New York and paints New York and uh, uh, more rustic parts of Long Island. And I was surprised not to find any paintings of the Conservatory Garden at 105th Street. And I thought, well, maybe it's just too colorful and too much like Giverny and paintings by Monet to be interesting to artists. So that was a gap in the park coverage that we wanted to include. So uh, uh, the publisher and I asked Simon Parks if he would paint something up there. Mm. So it turns out that he didn't paint any of the colorful parts uh, the garden that right now has a lot of chrysanthemums in full bloom, the garden at the south end that is like an English garden and is filled with flowers of different colors. He was attracted to the Italianate part of the garden, the wisteria pergola, which in October is beginning to change uh, colors. And that's what he painted, and that's what we put in the book. What are the parts of the park that are most frequently depicted in paintings? Well, the Bethesda Terrace and the mall coming to it was very popular from the time the park was first created through today. So that area, I think, is overwhelmingly the most painted. As you go farther and farther uptown, there are fewer and fewer paintings. The Ramble, I've only found two paintings of the Ramble, which is a difficult place to paint, because it's uh, wooded, it's dark, there are no vistas. But William Merritt Chase did a charming painting that's now in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts of a woman sitting on a bench, clearly waiting for someone. She's looking up uh, uh, expectantly. And that was an especially good find because when you see it, if you've read Edith Wharton, you think instantly of the custom of the country where Undine Sprague, her heroine, who is... uh, who needs to conceal from her current suitor that she has, in fact, been married and divorced, because that would end his interest in marrying her, she arranges to meet her former husband in the Ramble because, as she says, this is a place nobody will find us. So she is depicted in the book sitting uh, on a bench in the Ramble waiting for this man to come. So the painting is looking cheerfully for some, the woman and is looking cheerfully for someone to come. Undine Sprague wasn't so cheerful, but it was a close match. So that was good to find. I was going to ask you the question, what parallels can be drawn between paintings and writings about the park? Well, a lot of unconscious ones, but it was amusing to find so many paintings uh, and so many quotes from literature, novels and short stories by Henry James, by Scott Fitzgerald, by Edith Wharton, Willa Cather, J.D. Salinger, of course, who sent Holden Caulfield down to the pond at the southern end of the park looking for the ducks because Holden Caulfield was concerned that the, what would the, what do the ducks do in the winter when the pond freezes? And also accounts from diaries and memoirs and the writings of artists themselves about their time in the park. So finding all of those things was another uh, part of the treasure hunt. So why do you think it is that overall artists haven't been drawn to sections above 79th Street as 
much as the other sections. Well, um, there's less of the human parade north of there. The reservoir takes up a lot of the space from 86 to 96, and a few painters have done it, showing the broad vistas across uh, across the water. And once you get farther north, of course, the reputation of that part of the park was as unsafe until relatively recently. It probably wasn't as unsafe as people imagined, but there are few artists who went all the way to the northern end. One exception is Cristo, who, when he was preparing the uh, uh, for the gates, his installation in February of 2005, he first proposed that in 1985, and it took 20 years to get all the permissions uh, from the Parks Department and other agencies to create it. And over those 20 years, he did more than 600 images of what the gates would look like in certain parts of the park. So he needed to cover the entire park, and he's the only person I know who has ever painted the Harlem Mirror, and he did it very beautifully with uh, the banners running along the south side. A lot of homeless individuals moved into Central Park during the Great Depression, but you say in the book that very few artists have portrayed the park in a negative light over the years. Right. I think the closest to a negative light might be somebody like Rackstraw Downs, who has always been interested in painting more or less wastelands, industrial sites, parking areas, highway overpasses. He does a lot in Texas uh, at uh, oil refineries, and he painted Central Park in 1977 as a broad horizontal vista, as he does so many of his paintings. That w- He painted the Great Lawn uh, at its nadir when most of it was eroded and compacted before the Central Park Conservancy was created three years later and restored that as well as much else of the park. But he painted it in a very lyrical way so that uh, it's a beautiful painting. There's a wonderful s- sky that uh, echoes Constable, who was one of his inspirations from the 18th century. So it's a beautiful painting that doesn't make you see the park as anything uh, repellent, but it is one of the few paintings of the park at its nadir. You mentioned the Central Park Conservancy, and yes. you say in the book that you can't write a book about Central Park without mentioning the Central Park Conservancy. Right. It was created in eighteen, sorry, 1980, uh, because at that point the city had so few resources, and the Parks Department was always at the very bottom end of all of the city agencies, and it was recognized then that a partnership with corporations, individuals, and others who were interested in restoring the park would be able to uh, supplement what the city parks budget uh, could provide. And it's been a great model that has been used in other parks in the city here and other parks all around the country. Of course, Central Park being so iconic and being at the center of Manhattan has attracted lots of funds that other more neighborhood parks probably Uh, cannot, but the Conservancy in the 35 years since it was created has done an extraordinary job of restoring and maintaining the park at a level that it probably never had since, uh, since it opened. And it's very important because people who visit the park from New York Uh, see the park as a reflection on themselves and their city. Tourists who come from all over the world, and they're said to be 40 million people who visit the park every year, they look at Central Park and this is their idea of New York or their idea of all of America. You're listening to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Our guest today is Roger Pasquier. He's here to talk about his new book, Painting Central Park. 
What activities are most depicted in the paintings of Central Park? There's lots that goes on in the park. Yes. In uh, the earlier decades, uh, skating was a very popular theme for artists because the first skating in Central Park took place in December of 1860 before the rest of the park was even open. Uh, But there had been no place to skate in New York, in Manhattan before that. So it was immediately popular and skating became a very popular sport that had all kinds of social uh, impacts, particularly for women, because among other things, women were all wearing skirts down to the ground uh, in those days, which was dangerous, in fact, if you were skating. In 1860, you see Winslow Homer's uh, drawings for Harper's Weekly of skaters in the park, the women with their skirts down to the ground. Two years later, in a Courier and Ives image, the skirts are halfway up the calf for safety, and it became a change in fashion for women who were skating. Uh, Socially, uh, in addition to the changes in fashion, skating was one of the few places where a single woman could go unchaperoned out onto the ice, Hmm. and it was one of the few activities where it was correct for her to be supported by the arm of a man. So women could skate with their fiancés or their beaux. Women could, in fact, meet uh, somebody who was not approved by their family out on the ice, or women uh, could meet somebody whom they didn't know at all. So skating uh, was a very popular subject for, uh, for artists to depict, mainly when skating took place on the lake. There are fewer paintings of skating once Wallman Rink became the place for skating, but uh, overall there's a rich social history in those paintings. Uh, Driving in carriages also inspired a lot of painting uh, until the carriages were pretty much driven off the road by the first automobiles around the turn of the century. Riding horses, that was painted throughout uh, until the last of the uh, stables closed in 2007. Uh, I found one painting of a bicycler in the park by Alex Katz, a quite recent painting. Um, But curiously, I didn't find any paintings of bicyclers in the 1880s and 90s when it was another popular sport that women could do entirely independently. But on top of that, I think just uh, strolling uh, was the most popular sport. And then finally... uh, People sailing model boats at the conservatory water was very popular, and the best uh, evocation of that, of course, comes in Stuart Little, written in 1945, Mm -hmm. which has a beautiful scene and some nice drawings by Garth Williams of the scene of Stuart Little captaining a boat in a race uh, on the uh, conservatory water. You mentioned, of course, ice skating, ice skating in the winter, but are the seasons equally represented in the paintings that you found? Yes, for people strolling about in the park, probably more summer scenes than spring or fall, but you can find some from every season. Now, of course, the city grew up around Central Park, right? A lot of the buildings that exist now did not exist many, many years ago. You see that in these paintings. That's right. When the park was created, the reason it was put there was because most of that land was vacant, although there was a... uh, Sort of village of African Americans in the West 80s that had to be removed. But at the time, there were no buildings around Central Park, or at least no buildings that rose above the trees. <clears throat> the buildings that uh, started going up once Central Park was established and it became a fashionable place to live, a very desirable place, rose much higher than the uh, trees. And so from the 1880s on, you start seeing buildings emerging over uh, the park. And those buildings in themselves became an interesting feature for 
for artists to paint from the park, and they also became a new vantage point for artists to paint looking at from various heights <coughs> down into the park. And uh, you get ones from, for example, a studio building on West 67th Street where Child Hassam had a studio for a few years and was at about the the 12th floor probably, to paintings done much more recently, such as uh, one that Cristo did as part of his uh, submission to the Parks Department that was done, I think, from the uh, building at 9 West 57th Street, which at the time was one of the tallest buildings overlooking the park. And from there, you think you really you have to be in an airplane to see it from this, this height. So the buildings themselves became a subject as well as a new vantage point for getting a different perspective on the park. You write in the book that hotel windows have provided a lot of inspiration <laughs> yes. for artists. Yes, I was amused that within the two weeks that I found the Chagall and then the Hockney, both of them were painted from windows. The Chagall, I didn't immediately recognize what the windows were, but I went to the Belvedere Castle with my binoculars to figure out what building had the window configuration through which he was painting and was aligned with the buildings that he shows on Central Park uh, West. And I realized instantly that it was the Stanhope Hotel. And then Hockney, uh, his painting was uh, titled A View from the Mayflower Hotel, which no longer exists. It's been replaced by, um, I think it's a Trump building on Central Park West on about 62nd Street. So yes, hotel windows and penthouses uh, and other vantage points uh, were very popular for artists. Now, for the paintings that were done on the ground, how much time did you spend walking around the park yourself trying to find the exact scene that was depicted in a painting? That was that was an entertaining part of the project because I know the park well, but I was surprised in some paintings to see things I didn't recognize at all. I finally figured out that there are things that really were there but have since vanished. Uh, Maurice Prendergast, for example, was a very active painter in the park. He did more than 30 watercolors between 1900 and 1903, and he painted a gazebo and two fountains that uh, no longer exist. They are where the naumburg Banchel paving area that was uh, put in to create more space for people to sit and attend concerts is today. The the two fountains and the band shell that was there uh, originally were removed in 1923. So it was a surprise to find things that no longer existed and to figure out where they were. There were a few painters who painted the park in a rather imaginative way, who, like Leon Kroll, who, for example, said, I uh, take the park, I take the buildings, I take the trees, and I move them around. I'm quoting roughly, um, and put them in where I want them. So there's a view that he has, which is clearly looking down from the east on a hill over the pond at 59th Street. But when you look at the buildings, you have to turn around because those buildings are actually on Fifth Avenue over his shoulder. So um, it was fun finding the places where uh, artists actually stood. It was fun finding the ones that... Um, uh, reconfigured the park to to suit their own uh, purposes. Was it the exception or the norm that artists took creative liberties like that? Uh, pretty much the exception. Uh, it was uh, uh, easy enough eventually to find pretty much the exact spot where people were standing as they were, as they were painting. You mentioned <laughs> that you grew up around Central Park. What are your memories as a kid in the park? Well, my lifetime interest has been in birdwatching, and so I've spent a lot of time there uh, 
as recently as yesterday morning, not this morning, <clears throat> in the park looking at birds. But before that, um, when I was a smaller child, uh, roller skating uh, in the park, climbing on the rocks, uh, those were both things that I enjoyed doing very much. And it wasn't until I was about 10 or 11 that I was I first discovered the ramble and soon after was allowed to go in there looking for birds but the area around the model boat pond the conservatory water is the place that I feel closest to as the place where I've spent the most time <coughs> as a small uh, small child and then some of the rock formations that in those days seemed so large and so precipitous it's fun to look at them today and think that these were used to be a serious challenge. You've had a career as an ornithologist. As you mentioned, you're a bird watcher. How great of a place is Central Park to watch birds? Central Park is a terrific place because just think of it as you're flying into New York, looking down from a bird's eye point of view or even from uh, from the ground, you know that there are very few places where uh, migrating birds coming north in the spring, going south in the fall, uh, can find trees, undergrowth, water, fields, whatever it is that they need. So the big city parks like Central Park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, Forest Park in uh, Queens, Van Cortlandt Park, and the Botanical Garden here in the Bronx, all of them are oases for birds, and the birds are much more concentrated there in spring and fall than they are in the surrounding countryside of the suburbs. So you see many more birds there, and your chances of seeing the rare birds are much greater because they're more concentrated and there are also more bird watchers around finding them and passing the news. How much is wildlife depicted in the paintings of Central Park? Very little. Um, I think most of the painters were interested in uh, the people or some of the vistas, but I can think of a few paintings that had some of the ducks or the swans at the pond at 59th Street, but of course they were artificially stocked. I can think of a few paintings of people paint, feeding the ducks, but I can't even think of a painting that uh, shows a squirrel. Hmm, really? <laughs> With all the squirrels right. in Central Park. So um, uh, the wildlife and certainly any of the wilder wildlife uh, was not depicted. So what are we looking at on the cover of this book? Uh, that's a painting by Adolf Dane, um, who uh, was active in the mid-20th century in New York. And, of course, when you're looking for a cover for a book, you need to have one that sends the message instantly. And so there were, in fact, relatively few paintings that showed a view such as his with a field in the park and the instantly recognizable buildings like Rockefeller Center and uh, the Empire State behind it there. Most of the paintings of the park show closer up views that if you know the park well, you know where they are, or you can figure out by the title that it was painted in Central Park, not someplace else. But there were, in fact, few choices uh, that were as appropriate for this as uh, this painting by Dane, which happens to be at the Metropolitan Museum. So is this Sheep's Meadow here? No, that's the field just north of the Sheep's Meadow, which you can identify by the rocks on uh, either side. It's a kind of swale. The Sheep's Meadow is perfectly flat, but uh, he painted this uh, several times over the decades. He did it in a lithograph. He did it in uh, in uh, the watercolor. He did it in oils. He seemed to be particularly attracted to this field, which you can see as you are on the uh, the drive that cuts between the east and the west drive, just west of the Belvedere uh, 
terrace. If you look south, you see it and you see that he depicted the rocks uh, exactly as they are. It seems like he has a couple of police officers walking across the lawn here. Yes. So that painting was done in the spring of 1941. And uh, it's an idyllic spring. And of course, for us looking back, it's the last spring before uh, World War II uh, came to America and America joined the fight. How, if at all, has doing this project impacted your view of Central Park? Well, it's been wonderful to see how many painters painted the park. I found more than 80 artists. I wasn't able to include them all, but it was wonderful to see that the park from the very beginning through the present has attracted a lot of artists because when I started seriously thinking about this, I wasn't sure that in the years that New York became the art capital of the world, but through abstract expressionism, op art, pop art, when so many painters were not painting anything realistic, that there would be painters even then who took an interest in the park. So it's given me a fresh viewpoint, and it's also shown me how the park and its paintings affected so much of New York's social life and particularly opportunities for leisure and particularly opportunities for women to have leisure. And on top of that, how many of these leisure activities created new economic opportunities in the city. Even ice skating created economic opportunities because the women couldn't bend over to tie their skates. So there were boys who, for two cents, would tie a, a, women's, uh, a women's skates. Roger, thanks so much for coming in. Great to be here. Thanks. That was Roger Pasquet. His new book is called Painting Central Park. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, as well as like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.